0: Hi, I am Mohan Surf. I'm a professor of neuroscience and business. I teach at the Kellogg School of Management in Chicago, and I study the brain and try to help companies implement my knowledge of the brain in their businesses. Today, we're going to talk about dreams, about consciousness, about deja vu, AI, how neuroscience can help your business, about death, about brain mapping, science fiction, and about meaning. Welcome back.
1: We are in the fourth part of my delicious interview with Professor Moran Cerf. Uh, Moran is a professor in neuroscience and business he has published over 60 academic papers in esteemed uh, scientific journals uh, he is a pretty well-known dude he does amazing work and uh, you can find out all about him it, uh, he just put his name into google and you'll be blown away with what shows up um, and of course at the end of the show we'll make sure that uh, you know and it will be in the show notes where you can find out more about more and, and all the amazing work that he's doing we have gone through a lot in this show we've um in the last part we really talked about the morals and ethics of uh scientific endeavors and 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 where we're going and what we're doing and and where we we check ourselves in on on that uh in this next part i want to you know go go back into the brain a little bit back into the neuroscience and uh and jump into uh, what I like to call the glitch in the matrix. It's not my own, it's not my own statement, but it's it's one that's used. Looking at déjà vu, this you know the this it's often been a philosophical question. It's a neuroscience question. What is déjà vu? You tell us what déjà vu. What what do you see it as?
0: Okay, first of all, I might disappoint someone because uh, it, it's a neurological phenomenon that we now know how to explain pretty well and uh, predict. So I think that uh, we and, and away a little bit of yeah it takes away a little bit of the spiritual component of it even though it's still <laughs> fun to know it. Uh, um, so I'll, I'll, here, here's I'm going to explain it. I'll, I'll tell you about something that's not déjà vu and then reverse it and then it will make sense. So there's a, yeah. a disorder known as the Capgras disorder, named after the French guy Capgras who discovered that. And basically, it amounts to a following: Imagine that someone drives a car and they have a car accident and they hit their head into the wheel and suddenly. Kind of, they, they, they're, you know, stopped. And the ambulance comes, and if you hit your head in a car stand, they immediately take you to the hospital to see that there's no, you know, brain bleeding and so on. But the case that I'm talking about starts like that. A guy hit his head, was taken, even though he woke up and everything was okay. After a few seconds, it was kind of totally back in shape. Took in to hospital, looked at his brain, no hemorrhage, no brain, no bleeding or anything. Everything is okay. The guy is there monitored for a few hours, but then when everything's okay, he's sent home. When he gets home, he calls the doctor and he says, doctor, there's a woman in my house and she looks like my wife and she smells like my wife and she speaks like my wife, but that's an imposter. It's not my wife. It's, it's someone ah, in yes, my so wife's familiar. body. It's not really my wife. And the doctor says, how do you know? He says, I just know, I, I, I feel it right away. It's not my wife, please take this woman away or take me, but I can't be with her. And then the doctors come and they kind of try to figure out and there's no indication. And then they even have a, 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 his wife call him on the phone. He talks to his doctor, says, like, you wouldn't believe it. There's someone here who's not you. And then his wife comes out from the other room with the phone. and says, it's me on the phone. Why on the phone you know it's me? But when you see me, you think it's not me. And the guy says, I don't know how to explain, but this is not my wife. Okay. Bottom line. What happened there? When the guy hit his head, uh, a connection uh, was uh, kind of Seven. severed. And that uh, connection is between a part of the brain that makes you feel familiar with experiences and actually uh, not. So this guy sees his wife. So his eyes report, it's your wife, thumbs up. It goes to the same part of the brain that kind of creates the perceptual experience. He also hears her speak. The auditory cortex tells the same part. It sounds like your wife. She smells like his wife. Everything comes together. But there's another part of the brain that's supposed to fire when you see your wife. And that's the part that says, I'm familiar with that person. And only when the concept of the familiarity plus all the senses feed into a third entity together will the third entity say, yeah, if it sounds, it sounds, looks, smells, and feels like my wife, it's my wife. And if one of them doesn't come up, then the brain says, I'm missing something. It doesn't feel right. I'm going to say it's an imposter. The brain makes it up. It hallucinates that this person is not who it is. The reversed is deja vu. Deja vu is that this part fires and the other three do not. So if you just get a feeling of familiarity, this part gets active and it feeds into the system and says something is familiar, but there's no perceptual experience. Your brain interprets that as I've been here before. I know what's going to happen. But classical déjà vu experience is that you feel that everything that happens has happened before and you're familiar with it, but you can't predict what's going to happen next. It's not like you know, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you in a second, someone's going to come to the door. Only when they come to the door, you say, oh, my god, in the experience before, you also came. So past looking, you can always tell that everything that happens have happened before but it never could predict the future and it lasts for about 10-15 seconds before your brain sees that there's activity in in this area that isn't supposed to happen and it shuts it down so that's why deja vu usually happens uh, infrequently and we know it because we can now stimulate part of the brain and make you experience deja vu. So now it's totally controlled. We can zap to the our brain and for the next 10 seconds, you will feel that everything has happened before and you will tell, so it can't be that it's happening the first time. I know it. And that's just a neural mechanism that makes you feel either the things that are true are unfamiliar, capgrass, or the things that are not true have not happened before have. That's deja vu.
1: Fascinating. So that is really interesting. So it's, so the familiarity is the way it looks. The familiarity is the way it sounds. The familiarity is the way it smells, etc. cetera, senses, essentially. But that emotional content that, so again, I feel, therefore, I am. Uh, that I feel, therefore, it's real versus anything else. So, and people are very convinced in the deja vu sense of this is real this is
0: very real it's, and it's and the, even, the even the mechanism of the brain even reality
1: but even to a to a point of feeling prophetic about it yes right the, you know the, the and i think that many um maybe many of the prophetic shamans of history may have just had a neurological disorder.
0: <laughs> I mean, it, you know, um, we, epilepsy, one of the disorders that I spend time investigating because it allows, it allows us to actually look at the brain directly. The The term uh, that we use to describe a person who is basically under the influence is seizure. We say right now the person is a seizure. It mm-hmm. comes from the idea that people had that you're being seized, taken over by the god. Or, yes. or by uh, ghost So some, so people when they saw, you know, someone kind of shaking and drooling and, and like uh, looking at a blank stare and unable to control themselves because the consciousness is kind of coming out for a second and then they're not themselves anymore. It was seen as if someone seizes your body for mm-hmm. a while and leaves. And now we know how to explain it, so we can kind of make sense of that. But that we still use the same term because it looks, if we see someone having seizure, as if they're being possessed. By something from the outside, so it's unsurprising that those shamans and people up to a hundred years ago still had a hard time explaining this, because it's kind of the easier answer is something entered your body and takes over.
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know I would definitely consider myself a spiritual person, but I would not consider myself a traditional spiritual person. Um, Uh, But I I can definitely see how those things are, you know, I mean, you know, we can go to one side of it, which is this, the seizure and meaning being seized by the gods or an entity or whatever it might be, and that you're quote possessed, or if it's a good one, you know, now (laughs) you're the shaman, depending on which one comes in, right? (laughs) I guess, I don't know who decides that, but it's a pretty shitty way, you know, kind of wait, am I the devil or am I a prophet? I don't know. Uh, so, and I think we may have burned a couple of people based on that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the other side of that is, of course, then you go to, well, is there something beyond the brain as a mechanism? Because, the, you know, it's a piece of meat that fires in a certain way that is electrical in its basis of how it functions. Um, And I know that, that um, the near death experience that people describe and having died five times personally, uh, physically, you know, I'm, I was dead five times. It happened to me five times. Uh, That's what happens when you take up rock diving and you fall off a mountain from 120 feet. you know, people talk about, you know, the light and, oh, you know, it's not always that. It wasn't that for me. Um, and I know the neuroscience of that that was explained back in the early 2000s. It may be different from what I knew, which was different parts of the brain shutting down, hence the black tunnel, etc., going towards the light. Uh, is there new advances in that, in this this sense of soulful um you know the separation between the 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 brain the mind and the soul because for me uh, those are three subjects three set different subjects not one
0: so there's a lot on back here as always uh, <laughs> uh, here, here is the just have another little light conversation <laughs> on, on the neuroscience there's a little bit in the philosophical aspect there's one thing that i think i could kind of walk you through a uh, Thought experiment, and we can see what you say, and then I'll tell you how it lights uh, sure. aligned with the other. So, so, on the neuroscience, in one sentence, uh, twenty nineteen had a paper that came out from a group at Yale, uh, it published in Nature, the most prestigious journal in uh, academic research, and basically it spoke about the ability to maintain life after a person dies. Uh, it's not about a person; it was a pig, but the point was made that it's possible across animals. What they did there is they took pigs that were slaughtered at noon. And they extracted their brain from their body as soon as the pig was killed and they put this brain in an incubator and kept basically dialysis, they, they fused the right nutrients and the right kind of blood sugars and everything into the aquarium. And for all purposes, this pig's brain kept being alive, so the pig died, but the brain is there, and if you're a materialist and you believe that everything is the brain, then this pig was still kind of, you know, there. It yeah. didn't have sense organs, so or it didn't experience more of the world. It just sat there, but all the thoughts it had before are still contained in this space. And this gave us kind of the ability to really imagine uh, how it would look like if you do it with humans. I gave a TED talk about it just a few months ago during the pandemic from this background, speaking basically about like where science is going with that with all kinds of questions that we are asking. Like, are you considered that if you died, can I kill someone who already died? Like if I, if I shut down the incubator, Am I murdering someone, or is is he or she only dead once their body dies? Uh, what does it mean to have a person basically living forever on dialysis? Like, uh, what does it mean to the legal system if you can, you know, ask a person after they died, just their brain, who should get the money, the inheritance? And suddenly they say something that is not aligned with what they say when they were alive. Uh, if the brain says uh, this person killed me. Uh, could you put them in prison because someone says uh, I died two hours ago? It was a murder, and this guy did it. And you know what does it do to Sherlock Holmes movies, uh, when uh, you don't have to investigate? You can just ask the dead person who killed you, and they give you the answer. There are many, wow. many things there. Yeah. Uh, the, the study that was done in 2019 opened up a new discipline, studying life after death. Uh, but that's academic, and mm. on the philosophical aspect. I think we're still stuck in the same place. And that's where I could kind of walk you through a, a narrative. And this will tell us where you stand. And I, and I think that you and I are going to be in a different place there. And it is kind of where the conversation is right now. Imagine a situation that's similar to the one I just told you about the brain in an incubator. Only that it goes like this. You come to the room, someone creates a duplicate of your brain so instead of taking your brain extracting it and putting it in an incubator we just take every neuron in your brain and map it to a different one and now there's a, two of you there's one sits here a the one I've right now and a clone brain in an incubator sitting there and it's just one-to-one every thought you have it has every image you have it has every oh okay. dream so it has my one. history it has everything everything your history your right. feelings everything that that was up to that point because we we the entire material like everything material wise was copied and now i offer you this uh, remarkable deal i will uh, uh, kill you that's the first part of the deal and i will take your body and i will put the new brain into the body that you can't carry right now so you will walk away with the new brain the old body, essentially the same way you entered with a brain and a body, you will walk away. It's just that I will kill you and only one of you would leave because you can't have two brains like of one person. So one of you will have to be killed and it's gonna be you. And the person who gets the new brain and the new body, the the, the new you will also get $10 million. Let's make it a bit sum. The point is, will you take this deal? So the deal is I'm gonna kill you, but no worries. You're going to get money and you're going to leave with a copy of your brain. Will you take it or not? You can tell me what you think on that.
1: Okay. So so make sure I understand. So everybody listening understands. So I've got a clone brain. Mm -hmm. um, And really what I'm being offered is. Am I willing to be killed. And uh, not be dead, but to go through the death experience. Um, And get paid for that, really, because essentially that's what it boils down to. I'm still going to have identical brain, right? Uh, That's interesting. Uh, That's an interesting question. So um, at a material level, it's a fascinating experiment for me. The part of me that loves to experiment would be fascinated with that idea of having that experience And then researching, philosophizing, digging into what that experience was for me. Um, At a soulful, quote, spiritual level, you can't kill me, the soul, but you can definitely kill me, the body. So the question then becomes, if you transferred, if you cloned the meat did the soulful aspect of me remain? And here's the, the so for me the the soulful aspect of who I am is non physical, but is also um, non rigid. What I mean by that is. It's not just my soul because it's in my physical body. Therefore the brain you've cloned does not give me the soul because I didn't lose my soul when you killed the body. the soul remained no matter non-locally so it, it existed outside of physical reality so the reason I would say no is because I'm not sure I would understand how to communicate, or maybe I don't need to communicate my soul over to the other one. That's a dilemma. That's very interesting.
0: So um, I don't know that I have an answer. things, you, you, you basically, you, you did the job because you narrated all of the possibilities. And I think that it puts you, it basically kind of create an analogy for a big discussion in neuroscience, which is are we materialists or not, or dualists basically. Are, is there anything beyond the meat? out there or not now neuroscience for the sake of research assumes that there isn't Uh, it the existence of a soul that that, that actually is not measurable by any tool but affects the world violates all the laws of physics like the law of thermodynamics the law of uh, uh, you know the the law of uh, uh, kind of energy equilibrium there's something that doesn't have energy, it affects energy. So, so neuroscientists basically dismiss that. But when we ask them this question, they all say, I don't want to take this deal." Uh, There's something that was something that wasn't captured by the, the meat. Mm-hmm. And this kind of poses a conundrum that we don't know how to solve because we work with an I- hypothesis that says there is no soul, basically. Everything is measurable and, and if you map everything one-to-one, you got it. But everyone also thinks, but uh, no, not me. Like I, I, there's something else. I, I don't can't explain it. So this kind of challenge makes us scientists basically work with a flawed model. We basically study consciousness outside of the one thing that we think is consciousness, which is what is it that that is us? And I'm gonna finish by saying one thing, which is if we answer that, it has analogies in other fields. It explains what life is. Like what's the difference between a sperm and a life? Like at what point does consciousness emerge? It also right. answers that. It also answers the question is, is human uh, life an autonomous machine or there's something beyond that? And if so, can we predict things? Can we predict what you're gonna do next because it's deterministic or is there a kind of mechanism that kind of is undeterministic because it, it involves laws of physics that we don't know. And also in a way it answers the question of the beginning of time because at some point, like we when we go back, all the molecules that were there, kind of, we can sort them out by laws of physics, like a kind of billiard going back to one moment, but we can't sort anything about there's other things that are not measurable. So it's kind of in one question, summarizes the most interesting thing in science together, all the things we want to know, is there meaning to life?
1: Yeah. For me, for me, it's almost like um, when I look at it from a spiritual place, you know, we have got this thing called soul. When I look at it from a um, physics place, it's dark matter. Nothing exists without dark matter. It is everything. It is the majority of existence is dark matter, the thing that we can't see. Okay. So, is soul the dark matter? All right. So, for me, the, like my bigger question is: Is the soul the collective dark matter? So that is the collective consciousness of the universe, i.e., dark matter that I am personally tapped into is my connective f- field part of a resonance that connects me to the dark matter the universal consciousness and that that is my soul which is really a plug into that and my feedback loop with that dark matter as it evolves and i evolve so i am of the uh, of the elk that you know and I, i will use this word but it doesn't mean what what other people mean if god and i'm not talking about an uh, an entity but this collective consciousness i i i imagine that that is constantly evolving and it evolves through us and and it is evolving us so it's a feedback loop um that is in and out so uh, we're getting smarter because of that consciousness and the consciousness is getting smarter because of collectively because of us So that soulful place then becomes this, is that the dark matter that we are tied into?
0: I I think that the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, said something that I think resonated with me, where he said that we made a mistake uh, as physicists now, I'm I'm wearing a hat for physicists for a second, naming it dark matter, because Mm -hmm. it implies in people's minds that it's material. We don't know that. Like no. we basically use the equation uh, E equals mc square, And we know that there's energy that prevents things from moving. So, and we know that energy equals mass. So we kind of used uh, the easiest approximation, which is matter. But it creates in the kid who listens to us right now, the image that there's actually something physical that is sitting between two things that we just cannot see, you cannot measure. And so on, but it's there. And it might not be actually, to, uh, Neil, Neil said it, We should rename it. We call it Fred and Wilma. So they said, like, take something that has no meaning right. uh, in the context of physics and use those because that's that's the way we should think about it. Like, not as, I and in mean, that sense, I think the soul is the same thing. Like, as long as physicists or neuroscientists try to speak about the soul in measurable terms, let's say, how much does the soul weigh? Uh, how does the soul interact with someone? Well,
1: isn't we it six grams? Course,
0: uh, yeah, yeah, like that's the, that's how much you lose when you die. Yeah, exactly.
1: The weight of a human being before and after.
0: Right. So, so I think so. as as long as as long as we take kind of anecdotes like that, and we say that's it, we found it. That's that's like a, something happened, and this is now the the, the weight. Or, or we even so that that was like this is like you know one way. Or even if we take the stories of uh, people that. For the most part, are believers of something that kind of applies to science, where they say, "I saw uh, something leaving the body." Uh, you know, this is also is taking the language that we have from books and movies and applying, mm-hmm. like, like we imagine in, in movies when you when, when the character dies, they become like an angel that kind of climbs to heaven, uh, and that's what people see. So all of the people who kind of say, "Yeah, I saw my st- my grandfather's soul leaving the body," they describe it as like it looks like him. It's basically a uh, very transparent and it looks like we saw in, in the Disney movies when you we were a kid, it kind of floats out that uh, basically makes it hard for us to think about it and talk about it, because it forces it to have a language that is a uh, that is kind of uh, so specific and it's, uh, you know, people talk about aliens all the time and in most of the people talk about aliens, the aliens look like humans, they have Kind of, they see with the two yeah. kind of things that sit at the top of their head, and they kind of uh, interact. We basically are uh, the limit of our imagination limits our ability to think, and in that sense, because of that, we, the way you think about soul, dark matter, aliens, all of those things forces them to be something that we can't measure, and that's, I well, think is we, the challenge. We
1: frame everything in a context of familiarity. Yeah. So we so this is why I love. People like Salvador Dali, because
0: I these are them, people yeah. who
1: are willing to challenge the concepts of familiarity. You know, a, a very long, thin-legged elephant, you know, is is a is a wonderful. It's still in that, it's still in the framework, but it's stretching us to look beyond the familiar and i think that that's part of our greatest challenge is we we look we you know we're seeing aliens as an evolution of apes as opposed to yeah. you know uh, there's a wonderful documentary about about octopus and they describe that as being an alien life force and i i love that because its neurons are in its suckers, uh, you know, it's it got neurons, and it, but it has pattern recognition. It recognizes people. It is. It has memory. It's a highly intelligent creature that we're throwing on the grill. I mean, you know, we're pretty dumb around wh- where we limit uh, this hierarchy of intelligence. And so we're constantly shoving things in familiarity. And there was a movie came out a couple of years ago. I'm trying to remember what it was, what it was called, but it was a movie where it didn't look like us it was just a consciousness that created shapes and forms so that we could communicate with it and i think that's a much better understanding of because it pushes us outside of the limits of how we think it is because we say things like i am always bothered by this statement that's not possible Hmm. And, and for me why i'm bothered by that statement is Every scientist on the planet said quantum physics is not possible until the Copenhagen. Then it was like, oh, well, maybe it is possible. Now, a lot of it's still in dispute. I'm not saying any differently, but it opened up worlds of of possibility, like 10 dimensional reality, you ever at the thirds work or, you know, whatever it might be. And, and, you know, and, 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 is it, is it a ghost or a spirit or is it an alien or is it a hallucination? You know, we're still, I find like we're still using old fashioned building blocks to trying to describe something that is potentially way beyond anything we can presently imagine.
0: I think it's it's a, it's a flaw of the human mind again that it Mm -hmm. tries to use language that of familiar entities to describe things rather than open itself to, I think that you know, I studied dreams. Uh, We looked at dream diaries, people who reported what their dreams were about from the beginning of like the 1900s when people actually did it up to uh, And there's a moment that's really interesting where sometime in the early kind of 20th century, 1910, and so on, people were describing their dreams in black and white. That's all people's dreams were in black and white. That's kind of how they reported them. And at I some did not point, know that. at some point, they started using color in in that. And the transition happens when uh, movies started color having color movies. in them.
1: Yeah, makes
0: sense. So suddenly, people said, "Okay, dreams are kind of like a movie. Movies are in black and white, so my dreams are in black and white." As soon as movies had color, they realized you can have a color in a dream, and suddenly they started thinking about that. Dream. So we don't know how dreams actually are in your brain, but we know that what you remember when you wake up is what you're familiar with. So you tell the dream in the language of your awake self. We have no idea what you actually saw. Maybe you do dream black and white, but when you remember it as you wake up and you tell us a story, you recreate it now in color. You start color coding it, it, yeah. And I think that's true for, you know, we see things and we have to name them because that's the easiest, most efficient way of talking. So we say alien, uh, sadness, we kind of a label to make it easy for our brain to experience them and to communicate them to others. But it, if we strip that, we're sometimes actually able to see things as they are. Do you think we can get past that? I, I think that. I mean, I, in I the mean, foreseeable yeah. future. <laughs> so I think that I think that uh, some aspect of that, like uh, drugs, hallucin- hallucinations, and, and like are basically doing that. They strip away the the critical part of the brain that uh, forces you to label that and you just observe and i think that's what the reports about drugs are that many people see the same thing but suddenly they view they they experience more of it just because you don't stop and you kind of try to kind of narrow it and that's one entity so our brain is capable of that it's just that it wasn't the brain it did not evolve for that so we kind of took those functions and stripped them down to not being used but they're still there so if you shut down other systems you allow the ones that are more silent dormant Work out. So in that sense, I think we are capable just mechanically. Our brain has capacity. It's just a dormant system that's not working. And I think all together, the last ten years of neuroscience, if you kind of boil down one message that I'm trying to advocate to people, is uh, be a little bit more humble about your own brain and try to practice not coming up with a story right away, or reversing your own story. Like trying one day to say, "All the, the all morning I argued that we should go to this movie." with my uh, friends. And I'm gonna, for the sake of like making my brain, I'm just gonna change the reverse argument, I'm gonna argue the opposite thing, like see if you can actually play with your brain. I think doing those things, meditating in a way is an experience of that. changing your mindset and putting your brain in different extreme positions, force your brain to experience other things. And I think it trains you to let those systems work.
1: When I uh, when I studied at Lubavitch, um, I would sit with, with it was a particular rabbi I loved studying with, because he would read a section of the, uh, uh, the Zohar, mm-hmm. and then he would, uh, there'd be like five or six of us there, and he'd ask us to explain it ourselves, but we couldn't use anything anybody else had said. So the, the toughest thing, if there was five in the room and you were the fifth, it was pretty tough, because... You might have agreed with four of the things that were said, but you couldn't use that. And it was really a wonderful, I mean, I really think that that taught me a lot about thinking in ways that I don't normally think in order to give up my own biases and to challenge my own biases. And and I think that that has been extremely valuable. Um, And I think that that is, as you said, that's a system that is maybe dormant within us because we know that the brain naturally human bodies and actually many plants and animals, et cetera, produce DMT, which is used as a psychedelic therapy. Um, And what it does is it completely crashes everything that we hold as reality for about 15 minutes, you know, and Timothy Leary said when he first did his experiments uh, with LSD said, you know, was a bumper sticker that said uh take lsd and watch the walls melt um and so people took lsd and looked at the walls and waited for them to melt and they didn't realize that leary was not talking about the physical walls although those will appear to melt yeah. he was talking about the walls of your own perception the walls of your own biases and watch them melt away and and that you would ha- and but he says watch the walls melt right so it's not It's not active. It's, as you said, it's this observation of here's the thing I call reality, but what if it's not? And I think that that egoic identity that we are so attached to of what reality is and who we are in it is the great dilemma because we're pulled to advancing ourselves while remaining the same. As I like to say, everybody wants to change as long as they don't have to. (laughs) every company i've ever been into and i'll bet you it's the same for you every company you went into said we want something different but we don't want to change how do we do this (laughs) moron i'm confronted with that every time like we want it all to be better we want it to be but i don't have to change right no so i think you have to change first
0: I, I think, I mean, so this is, this is my advice for myself, but for everyone who asked me, I think baby steps. So I think, I think it's, it's the idea of a change is enormous. It's really hard to imagine that. So I say like, practice, practice kind of small changes. The example that I, that I said right now is great. When you encounter the next argument you have with someone, let's say your best friend or your partner, you will, as the argument kind of goes on, converge and try to protect your identity by protecting your view more and more as an exercise decide right now that 10 minutes in to your next argument you're going to not just like say okay i concede you're right you're going to take the other side and, and and i think that it's 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 first going to surprise the other person like they that's not what they experienced ever and also it will really make you practice seeing the world from their perspective but also forcing your brain to do something else but it's, it's tricky because Many of us will do it poorly. We will say, okay, I'm going to say that you're right, but actually I'm like, no, no, no. What I mean is actually really try to convince yourself that you're wrong and play the game fully. It's it's, even that's hard, but if you master that, we can elevate to trying to think about the world from the perspective of multiple people that you don't talk to from other companies. It's going to do well to your business if you can see yourself from the view of your customers of their competitors. But it's very hard. Trying to do that small scale will actually train your brain to do something that it's capable of doing, which is changing views. It's just not what we were trained for the last hundred thousand years. And we wanna now undo it in a week. It's possible, it just takes energy.
1: Yeah, I, I and I think that most people are a bit lazy about doing that, but it's it's something I have loved doing. I I call it intellectual wrestling. Um, I intellectually will wrestle with myself. Um, And my wife is often um, like, how can you possibly? So like, you know, when you and I talked about it um, in our previous conversation, there was a documentary coming on Netflix about flat earthers. And I was like, oh, I want to watch that. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I want to understand how you get to that thinking. In a world of science, how do you get to that there's a flat Earth. I'm fascinated by how you would get to that. That's for me is very interesting, uh, and I want to I want to argue that. Um, I've argued, I've had you know I used to do these workshops where I train people to think at a higher level, and I'd say, okay, I'm gonna I you know, I was born Jewish, and I'm gonna argue for the Nazi agenda. I'm going to argue for it, and you've you and. Sense. Right, and I want you to argue against it, but I want to find somebody, and I would find somebody in the room who's a little bit right, we wouldn't like fully put their hand up for being (laughs) that far (laughs) right, but I want you to argue for that left side, argue for you know all the things against Nazism, and I will argue for it. And, And I could do that, I can do that very, very well, even though I completely disagree with it. But but what that does, and this is the key for me, you know, because what you're talking about really in many ways is is developing the neuroplasticity to think in a different way, right? And so yeah. the reason I want to do it is because I want to think in a, get outside of my bias. I want to breach my own bias. I want to expand my own thinking. And, and in that, this is the key for me anyway, in that I develop a deeper level of compassion. I can't have compassion if I can't have curiosity and I can't change my mind without the curiosity. And I can't, I can't um, embody that unless I dive in and go, okay, I'm, I'm all in. And so one of my great teachers years ago said, you should study at least one thing a year you don't believe. Right. And I thought that was a fabulous, I mean, I didn't like it at the time, but I, so I went away and studied Zachariah Sitchin. And the Sumerian texts, which I thought were uh, another Israeli born up in New York. Um, and he was looking at the Sumerian texts and the Sumerian hieroglyphics and how we are made by aliens, how we were actually manufactured by aliens. And I thought, well, this is complete shit. I'll read that. And at the end of it, I was like, oh, hmm. yeah, there's some good scientific argument in there, along with all the other stuff. I can talk to you about all that stuff later separately, but it's you know it was that pushing yourself to learn something you don't believe in gives you the neuroplasticity, builds the curiosity, and in turn, it's it's the it's the step into compassion, which I think is vital for us to not only evolve intellectually but maybe emotionally and spiritually.
0: I mean, I, I, I coming from a different angle. I, I'm 100% on the same thing. I think that my one sentence kind of concrete, practical thing that your viewers can can uh, do is join a debate club. Try to join a debate club. Debate clubs are all about that. They give you an opinion, and you have to now defend it in a very structured way. It forces your brain to do something that you normally don't do, argue for, the neo-Nazi movement for a flat earth, the uh, anti-vaccines, whatever you want. You get to do that, and now you have to come up with a good reason why it forces your brain to do something it doesn't do often.
1: Yeah, I think it's I think it's vital. And it will make us a lot better as humans and, and a lot better compassionately. And potentially, I mean, you know, when you were talking about that in our last shot. you were talking about the the moral ethical um argument around you know the advancement of human beings and this split off the bifurcation of humans into those with less money and less technology and those with way more money and way more technology um and that debate on both sides of that is a is a truly fascinating way for us to confront our own bias so it's
0: right. fabulous I think I- I think we managed to put uh, Soul, hallucinations, DMT, Aliens, uh, Deja Vu, all in uh, one uh subject. We did
1: pretty amazing, mate. We did pretty amazing. Listen, I have absolutely freaking loved these. It's been amazing. I thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're busy. I know you have a lot to do. And I know you're a very in-demand guy uh, by all kinds of powerful sources. Um However, what I would love you to do is to tell our audience where they can find out more about you, about the projects you're working on, how to get in touch with you, potentially have you speak, or whatever it might be.
0: I'm the easiest guy to find. If you just type my name, uh, then my website pops up, and you see my email on the front page. And I sometimes take more than a couple of hours, but I respond to everything and I read everything. So, so I'm the easiest guy to find. I'm, I'm try my best. It's like a Philosophy uh, to really be out there and and not just like do the science in the lab, but actually spend time talking to people. So if you just look me up on the internet, you will find I just started today uh, uh, an advice column on uh, on Business Insider. This uh, this uh, called I think uh, How to Be a Moan. Uh, uh, oh, I love it. <laughs> So, so I think there's gonna be now even more uh, uh, ways to interact with me, where you can ask questions, and I'm gonna respond every week. So really, they're just like too much of me. Uh, you can spend a lot of time. Oh, I, I just learned today that uh, if you if you don't if you don't have enough of me on uh, the web, uh, you can also have me at your gym. Apparently, there's like a company that they put on the treadmill machines uh, lectures where you can walk and listen to me talk, someone showed me. So really you can have a lot of me (laughs) if you want. And I I do not recommend there's other people that you should listen to.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much, mate. It was great. Now I'm gonna ask you uh, uh, two final quick questions. First one is, what do you think everybody even based on this conversation what do you think that if you were to guide people what do you what would you say people need to be a hell of a lot more curious about
0: um, I, I think generally the, the, the kind of overall answer is themselves I think that uh, everyone needs to know themselves good and bad honestly uh, via art meditation uh, writing a diary uh, observing yourself in videos, asking your friends kind of to honestly tell you who you are, or going to a therapy, uh, and, and the reason being is that, of course, uh, you're the center of your own world, but more so because we live in a world right now where everyone else uh, in Silicon Valley tries to know you, and it's a race now. So, uh, <laughs> Facebook and so will there, Facebook
1: and know you better than you?
0: Right, they're, they're, they're doing it anyhow, and, and yeah. they're trying to kind of cater to your brain better than you. So you might as well join the race and try to beat them to knowing yourself.
1: That's a very, very good thing. I think that that was great. And finally, did you learn anything today?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that, so, so there's kind of learning about myself and learning about, about you and learning about the topic. So about myself, I think I think that every time I talk about something, I force myself to come up with new ways to say it and really try to see it from your perspective and see what resonates with you, imagine your audience and see what would are understand. So I think that most things I said today, you will not find anywhere else because I forced myself to say it at least in a different way, if not totally in a new uh, topic. So that's about me. Then about you. I think that I came to this conversation uh, thinking that we're going to agree on everything. And I think we found at least two things that we disagree on, or, or kind of the level of uh, spiritualism and the, of the, the level of uh, how you can use knowledge and so on. And this to me was fa- fantastic because it would have been really boring if we just say, yeah, I think A and I think even more A and if I think even more A. I think at the moments that, that we say, hey, actually, I have a different angle. They are the ones where I have to rethink my views and see, can I change my views? Uh, why am I saying something that you, like this? And I think that uh, on some topics, I think that the connections we made, thats I mean, like a little bit like, kind of like kind of a tooting our own horn, but like I think uh, some of the topics, I think that I've never, I, you know, I have a piece of paper, I'm not sure if the, if the video is uh, uh, showing, but like with notes that I took while we spoke, I think many times I said like, I need to listen to this podcast again when it comes out, because those topics, they never kind of came up in this order together. And now that I hear it, kind of, in the conversation, I think that I have a new angle on that. So in that sense, and I, you know, I wrote that. Sorry, I, I can share my printed PDF with the audience. It has like new ideas of things I spent hours talking about and still never came up in this way.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, I I love that too. Uh, I don't believe we can advance in a bubble, um, a sycophantic. Uh, people don't serve us. Uh, I have always said the worst advice you were ever received is spend time with like-minded people. That's terrible advice. Um, if you don't believe me, just look at what Facebook feeds you. It just feeds you more of what you believe. I want to be around people who I don't necessarily agree with, uh, that I can find a common ground with. And and that's what Curiosity Bites is built on, is, is having people I don't necessarily agree with or don't have to agree with, who can stretch me, stretch us, stretch our audience, and potentially stretch them. That's why I asked you the final question because it's important that I learn, and that's why I love these shows, because I learn, you learn, and the audience learns. Fabulous. Thank you, Moran. I hope you'll stay with us till the very end. I wanna thank you again. You can find out more about Professor Surf uh, by going to M-O-R-A-N-C-E-R-F dot So you just go research him. You can find him, as he said, on Google. There's a lot of stuff there. This has been a delicious conversation. I want to thank you. I say Stay curious. Thank you. Yes. He says, stay curious. Absolutely. And I want to thank you for sharing the show with everybody. And remember we need your help in uh, getting people to know about this show. I honestly believe that this is one of the best uh, podcasts on the planet. Uh, You're not going to get what you get here anywhere else, and I'm not saying that to toot my horn, I'm telling you because I really believe it. I think it's a phenomenal show with amazing human beings, and it really depends on you. Listening to the show, sharing the show, rating, reviewing the show so that the podcast platforms know about it and that your friends know about it. And because I'll tell you that our guests will often listen to not only their own show, but other shows that, that we've had on here. And they give me feedback the same way. This is your opportunity to grow. So, as Professor Surf said, stay curious, my friend. Stay curious. Till so next time, this is Dov Baron. And I am out.